Welcome to Sophos Security Chat Chat, episode 55. Trust no one. For April the 6th, 2011, I'm Chester Wisniewski, and that was my friend, Tony Ross. Tony, welcome. Thank you, Chet. It's always good to be back. We, Tony had some news, interesting, interesting news lately. Uh, he's going to be moving to our Sydney office, so I expect that we'll still have him on the chat chat, but it's going to be uh, over Skype. So enjoy the the lovely bassiness of Tony and a proper microphone on Chat Chat 55, because we may not uh, have many more opportunities to speak one another face to face. Quite a few big stories, nothing little this week in the in the in the security news, and I wanted to start out by discussing the continuing saga of the certificate authorities who we've placed our. Uh, well, I guess I was going to say trust, but you said we trust no one, and I think there might be a lot of. That's my advice: trust no one. Based on this. Yeah, well, 30, so it was EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, for those of you who aren't uh, as quite as American, uh, have published some information and research they did showing that uh, certificate authorities have signed more than 37,000 certificates that did not contain a domain name. Uh, Tony, do you want to tell us why it's important that there be a fully qualified name on a certificate? If you don't have a fully qualified domain name, that leaves the a purchaser of the improperly signed or signed improperly configured certificate at liberty to call their certificate something like www. Yeah, and it's also great for true kind of silent attacks inside of a company. Many companies have a website called Wiki or right. Intranet, and people are used to typing it without it being qualified. That is, you know, just going to go to, you know, well, in our case, we actually do qualify things. So we're, we're good doobies. But nonetheless, this is really concerning because the, the certificate authorities are held responsible for validating that only the person who owns the domain is allowed to register a certificate for it. I guess, arguably, if there's no domain name, we all own it. So I guess it's okay that they're issuing them. But <laughs> it seems a bit dicey. I mean, it seems odd that some certificate authorities have issued multiple certificates for things like localhost. And there's all kinds of alarm bells ringing in my head when I see a certificate for localhost. Um, I happen to have one, but I get that nice warning cop in my browser telling me that this certificate is self-signed and may not be who you think you're talking to. And that's perfectly fine because, well, it's my computer. They've released 37 thousand improperly signed are signed improperly configured certificates and these are the things that we use to to trust the sites we go to so am i being overly harsh in saying we've been duped well you know i think there's there's certainly some valid points in that i mean it, it clearly it makes the whole system seem shaky even if the certificate totally appears to be valid and i've had a lot of people go well you know i looked at it and it said it was signed by verisign so that makes it okay well case in point verisign uh, signed many of the 28 extended validation certificates that uh were part of this scandal if you will and they signed even one for themselves for an unqualified domain name the actual issuer was verisign and the customer was verisign so um that's yeah, sort of funny. I, you know, brand reputation clearly doesn't apply. It's not all a Komodo problem. The number one vendor who signed the, the largest quantity of these 37,000 was GoDaddy. And I think we should forgive that because they have a very hot chick on their TV commercials. But um, apparently that's maybe their, their marketing process here. So we really have an issue with this. And the whole SSL system was shook by the Komodo news two weeks ago. And this is not really helping. Although it's great to raise the, raise the awareness about this because clearly it needs some attention. And I don't know what the answers are, whether there needs to be fines to these companies when they step outside of the rules and regulations on what they are and are not supposed to sign based on validating identities. But whatever it is they're doing now, not 
good enough. It sort of puts them into one of three categories, if you'll let me close off on that. That is, one, being, oops, they got caught with their pants down. Two, they simply didn't care. Or three, they, they're crooks and they know what they're doing. Either way, I would be reluctant to do business with them. Yeah, and yet we do. So moving on to the next topic, um, Google is re- announced a couple days ago they're releasing a new version of Chrome into their dev channel initially, so it won't be for all Chrome users. But they're going to start looking at the actual file downloads as part of their safe browsing initiative. So safe browsing API is something Google's offered for a while now. Firefox and Safari also use it. And the idea there is if, it's, if a known website if a website is known to be infected, then they block it and you get the traffic cop. Are you sure you want to proceed? The site's been reported to have phishing or malware and you really shouldn't go here. And are you really, really sure? And are you really, really, really sure? And then they let you go and get pwned. Um, They've extended this to include file downloads now. And I, I didn't actually realize it didn't do that before. But apparently, if a brand new site were compromised that wasn't in their list, but it led to a known malicious download somewhere else on a website, and since you weren't viewing a web page on the final destination, it would apparently allow you to download the fake av.exe file. And now they will be blacklisting these known malware destinations as well. So is this going to be the thing that tips the market share in favor of Chrome? This, this I use Chrome now, I can be assured I'm safe. Well, of course, it doesn't mean you're safe. It just helps. Um, no different than Microsoft's anti-phishing filter. And Microsoft's doing something. Microsoft's taking the opposite approach, actually, now that you bring up the comparative competitive browser scene. Uh, Microsoft has decided in IE9 to whitelist known applications and popular checksums of downloads and for other ones to warn you that this is not a very popular download that Microsoft has seen very often and you may wish to be careful. Do you wish to delete it? Do you wish to allow it? This kind of thing. I think anything that puts more control in the user's hands is generally bad. Like in this case, it's telling you something's bad and it's giving you these stern, ugly warnings in Chrome. IE's approach of going, "Mm, we haven't seen this very often, it must be dodgy. Yeah, that's going to come up so often. It's going to be like UAC. You're going to learn to ignore it because it's going to be too popular. Plus, when it, when it doesn't come up, Microsoft will say, oh, we know this is safe. It was signed by GoDaddy. Yes, perhaps. Uh, well, it, it turns out for signing Microsoft um, applications in Windows, I believe GoDaddy is not on the list of certificate authorities, but I also believe the primary certificate authority might be VeriSign. Um, yeah, so there's, it's interesting what they're doing. Um, you know, There aren't that many Chrome users out there. I guess for Chrome users, it's a nice little benefit. And, and in fact, they won't even be getting it until the next major release goes mainstream unless they subscribe to the developer channel. But uh, you know, I was thinking about brought it from the standpoint of what we do in our products. And we have endpoint web protection in our stuff. And we find that this idea of blocking known malware destinations is a very effective technique at protecting people. And I guess if you're a Chrome user, you get double protection. You get Sophos and Chrome. But if you're not a Chrome user, the Sophos stuff will work for any browser. Or not, well, I shouldn't say any browser, but certainly will work for Internet Explorer, Firefox, Chrome, uh, Opera, and Safari. And if you go outside the limits of that, uh, there's nothing wrong with links. Uh, what, about, what about SeaMonkey? SeaMonkey's fantastic but uh i think you know we've got got our bases covered are pretty good it's nice to see google following along in our footsteps and hopefully uh combining their technology with our technology you get get pretty darn good protection and another difference being that we of course won't let you proceed on to the unsafe site regardless of the warnings we simply block it well that's true and you know we know that users always make the right decisions which leads me to talk about our friends over at rsa the security division of emc 
and uh, they've released some more details of their breach. And I, you know, it's exactly what you were just talking about. I mean, it's about users sometimes making poor decisions. And a couple points I found rather odd. I mean, they release more information that explains what happened to them, but none of it helps those of us that may or may not be RSA customers make a decision about whether their tokens still work. Um, two, apparently the story is a user got a spam that was actually properly detected by whatever technology they're using to filter their email that had a malicious attachment. Uh, the Excel spreadsheet with the embedded flash file zero day that uh, Michael and I talked about, about three weeks ago on the, on the chat chat. And apparently the user released it from quarantine and then opened the attachment. So maybe this is a, a good best practice kind of thing. I mean, apparently the technology they were using worked and the user defeated it. I'm sure that person uh, has a lot of regrets at the moment. It's been talked to a bit, but you know, when you and I both come from an email gateway background here at Sophos and for years I've been telling system administrators, you know, when you quarantine something, if you're going to allow users to access their quarantine, which a lot of companies want to do, reduce the burden on it of having to deal with, I lost an email. Can you go look for it? Um, if you're going to let people release things, maybe your policy should be to drop the attachment when it goes into the quarantine. If it truly was a false positive, you can always have an alternate method because if it's from somebody you're expecting to send it to you and it turns out it's a false positive, you could always contact that person to go, mm, sorry, my email ate your attachment and find another alternate method to acquire that file, perhaps Dropbox. And then when you download it again, your web protection will kick in and go, no, actually it was a virus. Um, but you know, there are alternatives to sending it in via email. And I think it's a safe practice to just drop attachments on quarantined email. Um, email's not a file transfer protocol, as our product manager, Scott Cressman, says. My sort of thought on that is, my God, man, it's 2011 and people are still opening attachments in email? Oh, but it's about our 2011 recruitment strategy. I must open it even though I'm not in human resources and I don't have any budget to recruit anyone. Anyhow, um, it's probably some secrets. I don't know. I can find out what my buddy makes. So good, good social engineering will always win. We need to make the technology a little more strict. And last but not least, the big story of the week, Epsilon. Um, I got a call from a journalist today. How many email addresses were involved in this? Don't know. The reality is email addresses are not considered PII under the law in most countries. So they're not required to disclose anything. The companies that are doing it seem to be doing it out of peer pressure at this point. There were several large US banks that had to go to their customers with their head between their legs and go, yeah, your name and email might have been disclosed. And, and for a bank, that's really important, of course, because phishing, knowing that you have a relationship with Chase or US Bank is a very important thing for an attacker. So the banks kind of, I think, felt they had to. And then once the banks did, everybody else like Target and Walgreens and L.L. Bean and gosh, if we were to list them all off, this would be a long podcast. All the major brands that you know and trust out there, uh, Marriott Rewards, I, mean, I can't even count the ones I got. And I'm not even American and most of these companies were American. So the Epsilon breach is huge. My message here is in support of my colleague, Paul Ducklin from South Australia, um, is, you know, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. People are going, oh, is this as bad as the Heartland Payment Systems credit card breach? Well, whether the number of records is larger or smaller can be debated, um, but the real issue is what was stolen. And email addresses are kind of public. Your name is often associated with them in forums and Gmail and chat and a million different places you go. It's not to say that you wouldn't want to protect that information and that you don't consider it personal or private in some manner. But it could be a lot worse if there were any other data associated with it. And so far, all indications are that it's simply names and email addresses. So let it be a lesson learned. And... You know, Tony, if if 
the companies that are seeming to be making these announcements are doing it begrudgingly, but they send all that stuff out to some third party to save money, right? Like, isn't that the idea? It, it is. I mean, let's be the put ourselves in the IT administrator's shoes. Oh, man, if we outsource this stuff, we're going to save a boatload of money. Well, of course, they're saving a boatload of money. The people they've outsourced it aren't doing nearly the same level of protection and security on it. Encrypt your data, folks. I may have only said that about 75 times in the last 55 podcasts, but I'll say it again and again. Encrypt, encrypt, encrypt. This could this is all preventable. And we simply need to be sure that our partners that we, you know, it's not to say your partner couldn't save you some money and do a better job than you at a given thing like specialty thing like emailing, but make sure your partner is following practices that you would follow. And that they're treating your customer the same way you want your tr- customer treated. And if they can't assure you of those things and they can't provide you with contractual agreements that say that they are able to meet those obligations, then perhaps there's someone else out there who could provide you an equivalent service and, and meet those obligations. Or perhaps if you make them accountable, they will to win your business. Perhaps they will. Well, thanks for joining me, Tony. This has been Chat Chat 55. As always, you can get all of our podcasts at podcasts.softless.com or on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.